to see you all today on this Father's Day. We are continuing in our series through the Gospel of John. We're up to chapter 11 now. This is the 23rd week we've been in the Gospel of John. And uh, we're in chapter 11. We're calling today's message Back from Beyond. Back from Beyond. Kathy's already alluded to our, our theme today. If you're familiar with the gospel story of the raising of Lazarus, that's what we're going to be considering today. So if you've got your Bibles, you want to turn to chapter 11, uh, or your phones if you're using that, or your tablet, or whatever you're using. But uh, John chapter 11 is where we're going to be, and we'll also have some of the uh, passages on the screen. Well, when someone requests a grave with a view... It's usually, you know, a place overlooking a beautiful valley or over the ocean. It's not a, an actual window down to the casket underground. But that's exactly what Dr. Timothy Clark Smith wanted when he died in 1893. Now, Dr. Smith was a school teacher. He was a clerk for the Treasury Department and eventually a medical doctor. But according to a well-established story, he suffered from severe taphophobia. Taphophobia, a fear of being buried alive. So let's just say that although Dr. Timothy Clark has been dead for many, many years now, things are definitely looking up. Or at least he is. Beneath the odd grassy mound on earth, Dr. Timothy Clark's face was positioned beneath a cement tube that led to the surface. The six-foot tube ended at a piece of 14 by 14 inch plate glass, allowing Tim to gaze upward if he was buried alive. Well, supposedly Dr. Smith also had his tomb outfitted with tools for escape. Now, although condensation and plant growth through the years have uh, kind of blocked that shaft, uh, past visitors claim to have been able to look down and see tools among Smith's bones. Said one person, you can see the face of the skeleton down there with a hammer and chisel crossed on the ground next to it. Another source claims that when Smith was interred in the corpse's hand, they placed a bell that he could ring if he woke up and found himself the victim of premature burial. Well, death causes people to act in strange ways. I spent a little bit of time this week going back through my files over 30 plus years of ministry and I found that I've conducted nearly 300 funerals or memorial services. And one thing that I've learned is not to be surprised by how people react regarding death. In our text today from the Gospel of John, we find Jesus himself reacting in what seems to be some rather odd ways. We also see some people experiencing the loss of a loved one react in the face of grief, and then we see how Jesus' opponents and accusers react when they see Jesus' answer to the death of his close personal friend, Lazarus. We will also read about Jesus' fifth of seven I am statements. We've been kind of tracking those as we've worked through the Gospel of John, uh, as John has recorded them, where Jesus connects himself directly to the personal name of Jehovah God, Yahweh, 
or in English, I am. Our text is John chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 44. And we're going to just be asking this question. What does this account of Lazarus' death make clear for us all these years later? In this passage, we see that Jesus reveals God's views on death in part to encourage our proper response to death. And so I want to begin by reading together the first part of John's account in verses 1 through 4. The words are on the screen. Let's read these together. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, him whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Amen. The Word of God. Now, to be fair, I don't know exactly what it is that we might expect Jesus to do when he got this message. Uh, his his uh, friend Lazarus was gravely ill. And in the first thing that Jesus does, do you notice is nothing. He does nothing. As I said, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly what we might expect him to do. But aren't we all powerless in the face of impending and approaching death? But still, Jesus, nothing really. Surely he could have done something. Now, Jesus does tell his disciples this sickness will not end in death. It's for God's glory so that the Son of God will be glorified through it. But what kind of comfort are words like that? Who wants to face the worst days of their life and hear, oh, this is for the glory of God? Come on, Jesus. Nobody wants to hear that. I don't think Mary and Martha wanted to hear that as they were sitting at the bedside of their ailing brother as he was getting weaker every hour. Where is Jesus? He should be here by now. Where is Jesus? Lazarus is slipping away. Where is Jesus? Oh, what good could possibly he do now? It's too late. What is the account of Lazarus' death trying to make clear for us? I think in one measure, it is making sure that we know that God knows. God knows. That's the first point of our message today. He knows. He knows, among other things, that in the face of tragedy, he knows what will happen. He knows what will happen. In verse 11, after Jesus speaks about Satan being destroyed, he says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now, his amazingly somewhat dim-witted disciples at times. They just don't get it. What do you mean he's asleep, Jesus? And so Jesus says it even more plainly in verse 14. Guys, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Well, why? What are you going to do? What's going to happen? He's already dead. Well, it's clear. He knows he knows. If we look ahead to verse 23, when Martha comes out to find out why Jesus didn't show up sooner, Jesus says, Martha, your brother will rise again. 
And then in each progressive statement, the Bible makes clear that God in his son knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows. You see, the events of tragedy do not elude him, even if they exasperate people. And they do, don't they? They do frustrate his followers, as John's statements clearly show. When Martha comes out to Jesus, who has delayed so long to get there, she says in the 21st verse, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And yet Jesus still waits outside of town. Next, Mary, the other sister, finally goes out to him outside of town again. And in verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now these are amazing statements because they contain in the same moment amazing faith and great blame. Lord, if you'd been here, you would have been able to save our brother. There's the faith. I believe you're able to stop this, but Lord, where were you? Where were you? There's, there's the blame, right? This is not some high-level theological statement of deep understanding about God's sovereignty over life and death, but it does express our hearts with great understanding. You're able. Where were you? It's not just an ancient account either, right? It's what we say sometimes, isn't it? God, I know you're able, but where were you? Where are you when the disease is spreading in my family? God, where are you? Where were you when that car crossed the center line? Lord, where were you when we lost the home? Lord, you're able... Where were you? When tragedy comes upon us, Lord, you are able, where were you? And there's no immediate answer in this text. I want you to notice that. It doesn't say that Jesus was outside of town for a particular reason. He just says, in words that cause a, a good deal of consternation, that what will happen will be for God's glory and for the good of his people. Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't here to fix it. And in a moment, though, you will believe something. You see, he knows. He knows. God simply says, I'm not surprised. It's not the, the final answer, but God is simply letting us know in some measure, he knows what will happen. And I need to know that for my comfort, that my God isn't ignorant of what will happen. He knows. In fact, he says it will happen for glory and ultimate good. And we need to believe that. This encounter reminds us that any death, even one death, is a destruction of the good plan of God, the way that he originally made this world. It is a corruption of the universe in which we live in. It will require even the death of God's own son to put things right. And then in the meantime, God's people will experience at times pain and misery in this fallen world. For a moment, visibly, and sometimes even violently, it appears that evil will rule the day. 
And this is distressing. And it's awful and it's terrible. And God knows all this. This is not the way it was meant to be. We know now that Jesus had to die to overcome all of this. We know that death is awful. We know that it's miserable. We know that it's a part of the curse. We should feel the depth of it and be willing to say that, you know what, we don't have a quick, ready answer all the time. Death is horrible. It really is. Thankfully, it is not the end of the story. Not for Lazarus, not for Mary or Martha or even Jesus, and not for us either. Because God knows, because he is well acquainted with the pain and the grief and the disappointment of death, we also know that, number two, God cares. He cares. I want you to read with me another section of the text, this amazing encounter, beginning in verse 30. Let's read this together. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Mar Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Mm, the word of God. So Jesus knows, but does he care? And the answer is the same. How do we know that he cares? Because Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. 35. It's every little kid who grew up in church. It's their favorite verse in the Bible because it's the shortest verse in the Bible. It's easy to memorize. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. But friends, Jesus wept for a reason, for a purpose, because he cares. Even those who are observing him, including his opponents and his enemies, know that. Look at that 36th verse. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. You get the sense that Jesus is, it's not just letting one little tiny wet tear down his cheek. This is observable, obvious grief. Tears are wrenching him in such a way that people say, wow, he must have really loved Lazarus. You know, sometimes when a great, tragedy occurs like a you know like a hurricane or a forest fire or an earthquake sometimes we'll hear people say something like well yeah some died but many more were spared you know there could have been 50,000 people that died but only 7,000 died well that makes perfect sense unless you were married to one of the 7,000 or it was your father or your mother or one of your kids you know there are some Christian people who say 
Yes, some despair now, but, but others will be led to repentance. Well, that makes perfect sense as well. Unless you realize that in that statement, you're arguing that terror is a tool of God's spirituality. And then there, there are those who might say, well, judgment was warranted upon that evil nation or community or people group. They deserved it. Yeah, maybe. But it is warranted every day because of the sin of each one of us. Even we who gather here. God would and he does have a right to bring this building down on our heads. Now I'm not saying that the rational explanations have no place or that they're uh, in some measure not useful. But I want to say this, they are not sufficient. The human formulas that we come up with, even our theology is so often incomplete. We can say the words, right? Oh, God's works are most holy and wise and powerful and preserving and governing all his creation and all of its actions. That's true. Absolutely true. I believe that. But it is also incomplete. Does he care? Jesus wept. Does he reveal it? Jesus wept. Does he love us through it? Jesus wept. There is a truth in the expression of his humanity that we need to know when our logic fails. Jesus wept. You know, our tendency often when we're trying to comfort people who are hurting is by trying to come up with, with answers to the circumstances. Or even trying to soften the circumstances. But friends, instead, what we have to learn to do as followers of Christ, as parents, as family members, as friends, as co-workers, as neighbors, is to offer comfort to people. To weep with and for them. And to say, you're looking for answers in your circumstances. But the only answers are in the character of God. Does God care? Look to the cross. Look to the Savior who wept for you and bled for you. The truth is, in his person, in his character, when all of our answers about the circumstances fail, the truth has to go back to looking at his character. God knows our hurt. God cares when we hurt. And finally, number three, God rules. He rules. And this truth, friends, may be the hardest of all. Does God really rule in all of this? Well, the scriptures make it plain. Though in terms that we don't always like, they make it plain that God's triumph comes sometimes after a time. There may be a delay, but there's always a design. Wouldn't it have bothered you to be Mary or Martha in the circumstance we read about? In verse 4, after Jesus is told about the sickness of Lazarus, remember he says, the sickness will not end in death. But then in verse 6, we're told, he stayed. 
two days longer. And that's not the end of it. In verse 17, we find out on his arrival that Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Friends, that's a minimum of, of six days of delay there. What in the world is Jesus doing? Well, let's read. Let's read the next section together, beginning in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Amen. The Word of God. So between his conversation with Martha outside the town, where she implies that all he's got to do is snap his fingers, and in the blink of the eye, Lazarus will be back, between that and the fact that a significant amount of time had passed by, there is an amazing intricacy of design that's put before us in this scripture account. Now, Jesus doesn't just snap his fingers and do Martha's bidding, does he? But he does have a plan. Martha, your brother will rise again. Oh, Lord, I know in the resurrection on the last day, I get that. But how does Jesus answer? Verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. There is the plan. There is the design. There is the rule. I am, Jesus says, the resurrection and the life. I rule. Resurrection has a name and it is Jesus Christ. Resurrection means to bring something that was dead back to life. Now the term resurrection is one of those theological terms that we Christians sometimes throw around, but sometimes we don't fully understand. But the idea of resurrection is not supposed to be something that we merely understand with our minds or even feel with our hearts. It is a truth that only people who know Jesus can fully appreciate. Martha knew Jesus. She knew him. And in her limited faith, she comes to realize that Jesus is more than just a dear friend. He is more than a trusted teacher or a respected rabbi. He is the one the one who rules over life and death and eternity. 
And in her limited way, she is able to verbalize her faith with that tremendous statement. In verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. You see, God's answer to sin and death and disappointment and heartache and anger and grief and hatred and confusion... His answer is resurrection. His answer is Jesus. He knows, he cares, and he rules. Now Jesus' triumph may take some time, but it will surely come. For he is ruling with a care, with a, an intricacy, with an intimacy for his people that defies our full ability to comprehend. You know, it's interesting to me in our account here that Jesus is going to pass this way through Bethany again. In just a few days, he's going to travel through Bethany again on his way to Jerusalem. And the crowds, the crowds will take off their cloaks and put palm branches before him. And they'll say, Hosanna, his time has come. But his time had not yet come. Though it will surely come. And then in another day or two, they will say, crucify him. Because his time has not yet come. But even though it has not yet come, it will surely come. And when they hang him on the cross, they will chide him. Ah, oh, tell your angels to come and save you. And they don't come. But they surely will come. Three days later, you know the story. He will rise again. He will come. His time will will surely come. That's because he rules. He rules. And that's what this encounter at the grave of Lazarus is all about. It is a living illustration of what is to come. A picture of God's view of death and life and eternity designed to encourage our proper response to death and life and eternity. Now you've probably noted by now that we skipped the most amazing part of this whole encounter. So we've got to read that together. Verses 38 through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Amen. God's word. Lazarus is dead. And to show us that God has power over even death, the harshest 
of this world's realities. Jesus comes to make it right. He will raise this one and to show that he has the power over sin, even to the extent of death. We see it, don't we, in this microscopic vision of Lazarus' life? And then we see it on a grander scale. When not much very farther down the road, Jesus himself rises again. Friends, it is why Jesus wept so that we would trust that he cares enough to do the right thing in our lives. And his rule will win out, even if it doesn't seem like it in our timeline. Even if we're like Mary or Martha, Lord, you could have done something different. I wish you would have done something different. It's okay. Have faith and wait because his rule will win out. He shows us as he overcomes the power of death to accomplish his good purposes in a fallen and sometimes terrible and ugly and wicked world in which we live in. Well, you know, believe it or not, a large number of people have chosen to be reminded five times a day via their smartphone app that they're going to die. The app called We Croak, you can look it up, it's a real thing, has more than 200,000 downloads and there's more than 90,000 monthly users. More than 25 million reminders are sent out annually. Now most of the, the messages are simple. Don't forget, you're going to die. Others are equally as somber. The grave has no sunny corners. And those who are afraid of death will carry it on their shoulders. Can you imagine getting those kinds of messages five times a day? The messages are sent out by design at random times at any moment, just like death. Now the founders of the app were inspired by a, a famous Bhutanese folk saying, which asserts, to be a truly happy person, one must contemplate death five times daily. And the basic idea is this, that the more that we're reminded about the inevitability of death, the more that we will smell the flowers, appreciate every moment of life, one of the co-founders, a man by the name of Hansa Bergwall, elaborates. He says, one of the things that makes us most unhappy in life is we tend to get caught up in things that really don't matter. We tend to, to get caught up in minutiae or in stress or in tons of things that ultimately aren't that important. And when we remember our mortality, we can take a deep breath and go, oh, I don't have to think about this. I don't have to engage. I don't have time for this. And we can move on to better things. Well, I thought that was an interesting little news story I came across. But you know, friends, if you want, you can choose to rely upon an app to remind you of your impending death so that we can pursue life in this world more fully. Or, or, we can choose to rely on the God who knows and cares and rules over us. For he has our best interest in mind. 
both in this very temporary world and much more importantly, in the life to come. Because he is the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in him will never die. Do you believe this? Do you? Let's pray together.